What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Hey, hi, hello, Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Favalli coming at you without my co-host, Andy Bailey. Pleased yet again to be joined by NBA Math's founder and editor-in-chief, Adam Frommel, who is also an editor for Bleacher Report. As always, follow him on Twitter, at Frommel09. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review Hardwood Knox on iTunes. Download all of our episodes. That's the best way to help us. But hey, we're keeping these intros accelerated during this time where they're but we're still trying to talk about hoops. We're going to get into our Brooklyn Nets uh, all-time rankings for the past decade, so that's not all-time. Our top 10 Brooklyn Nets players for the past decade. We've already done the Hawks and the Celtics. I will stop listing off the teams that we've done once it gets uh, too too many, once they become too many to fit into a truncated intro. Before we get started, though, we ask, as ever, Adam, how are you doing? I think I was doing better before you saw all of my limited dance moves while we were waiting to start recording. And I'm not quite sure if talking about the last decade of Brooklyn Nets basketball is going to be a positive or a negative for our moods, but we'll see. To be fair, it seems like it's going to be more positive than the Charlotte Hornets conversation we're going to have Oh, it definitely will be. It definitely will. So just as a brief refresher of the process, which will basically be etched in stone after this episode, we have a composite ranking that comes from my rankings, Adam's rankings, and then a fan vote. So everyone, when you see these tweets uh, soliciting responses, answer. It helps a lot. So Adam comes up with a composite ranking. We list that, and then we go through the the individual categories to help keep things moving and give some perspective. Just some fun conversation. We hope you're enjoying this. Adam, do you want to get us started with the the 10th best net of the past decade? There's actually not one, correct? Spoiler? Yeah, there's there's not because we have two tied for ninth place. So the first one we'll talk about here is uh, is Chris Humphreys, who finished 11th in the fan vote and thus did not get any points from that part. He was not ranked by you, um, which means that I single-handedly got him into our top 10 by putting him at 8th, which I still don't know quite how I feel like that. Uh, feel about that just because nothing about Chris Humphrey's game was was special. He was a a decent double double threat for a while there. He uh, he spent three and a half years playing for the Nets franchise, um, both in New Jersey and Brooklyn. Uh, he's probably best known for his dalliances with the Kardashians, which I think kind of deflates his perception because he was he was legitimately like a decent good to good role player for a little while, which is good enough for this franchise, which has suffered through quite a few bad seasons in the last decade. Yeah, cer- certainly a case for him to be there. I just, I'm just i surprised he beat out Rondé Hollis-Jefferson for uh, the 10 spot because Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, we haven't gotten to the honorable mentions uh, yet, but he doesn't make the list at all, and he was my number 10 pick. He was and- my 10th as well. So there's a thereness factor to him as well. Uh, hat tip to the Jeff Teague ranking in the inaugural Atlanta Hawks podcast. Uh, and while the Nets, I, I don't think it helps that his role kind of was deflated as the Nets got better, but there was always seemed like just some potential there. He's having he had was having a pretty good year for the Toronto Raptors uh, this season. His offensive rebounding became like a thing, and he's always had the air of like, oh, can that guy kind of be like a, a little bit of a playmaker in the half court? Uh, you've wondered what could happen if he finished at a an okay clip or, around the rim. What if he got more of a consistent mid-range jumper, which he, I don't know if you could say it was 
in high volume, but the 2017-2018 season, it kind of looked like he was putting together uh, a fairly okay mid-range game, and then that has sort of since tapered off. So I I get that he's not necessarily, relative to these conversations, like a great candidate, but I was very surprised that he was left off the fan vote, and then because of that, the, the composite rankings as well, which I guess I should blame you for, for putting Chris Humphrey so high. I mean, I stand by that. Just because yeah, I, I always expected more from Rondé Hollis Jefferson than he's given. I think at this point, like the best case scenario is he's like a poor man's version of Sean Marion who can't shoot. Like I, that's, that's probably the best even case generous. Now, right? yeah. yeah, but well, he was someone I really liked coming out of Arizona. I thought it was a surprise when he fell to twenty third in that draft, um, and just have consistently expected more. And maybe that's influencing me here, but. I just I think Chris Humphreys just did more good things for the Nets during his brief time there. I do give the or, Nets... or maybe fewer bad things is a better way to put it. Well, he was with a Kardashian, so can you a- actually say that? Yeah, that's true. So I will give kudos to the Nets, as particularly when Kenny Atkinson got there, is when they just decided, hey, we're going to test uh, Ronda Hollis Jefferson out as more of a playmaker, and there were a lot of turnovers involved, but he did show some just promise as a passer, even in the half court, and then they moved him around a lot defensively. Uh, in, mostly in, I don't want to say these small ball lineups, but they they ditched the idea really uh, that he had to play sort of like a wing. And so some of those lineups where he was the four, uh, they they were effective during some of that time. But yeah, it's it's I, I, this is like a bleak outlook when you, when you're talking about either of these two players as <laughs> it's not as a promising start. No. Who we got at number? Oh, who's tied for number nine? Excuse me. Yeah, so tied for for number nine is Boyan Bogdanovich, who finished exactly tenth in the fan vote. Uh, he was ninth for you. He did not appear on mine, although eight through him at eleven essentially for me were all pretty close. I just I think it's important to remember that like he was not the player that he has become for the Utah Jazz this season when he was with the Nets. He he topped out at thirty eight point two percent three-point shooting during his sophomore season and just like wasn't that consistently reliable offensive guy even though you could see glimpses of that that potential but ultimately for me like he he spent 212 like fairly forgettable games in Brooklyn which just pushed him just slightly down in this this tier of very similar role players I do he was my number nine guy and I make no apologies there always someone that you could see would get you a bucket and uh, the Washington Wizards certainly saw that at the 2017 trade deadline. I sort of wonder what would have happened with him specifically in Brooklyn if he wasn't there at the time when they were basically playing nobody even 30 minutes per game. Uh, he was there for the first, I think it was the first two seasons of Kenny Atkinson's tenure, maybe all three, but they weren't playing guys like high volume minutes. And he was always just sort of that microwave score. And he's certainly gotten better. He's His career really took off once he got to the Pacers. He helped out the Wizards a little bit, but once he got those two seasons he spent in Indiana really sort of made his career, at least put him on the map. I shouldn't say made his career. I still, you you could still tell that all he could do, like he had that offensive uh, versatility or where you could rely on him to to get a bucket, not just as a spot-up shooter, but could could create and generate some of his own offense. And so I, I find myself wondering, I think he was good enough to make this list, in the number nine spot, and I kind of find myself wondering what would have happened if he would have been in Brooklyn at a different time or if the priorities might might have been a little bit different during his tenure there. Yeah, so just as a housekeeping note, he was actually only there for Kenny Atkinson's first season. That was the season that he got traded to the, the Wizards midway through the year. But I, I think that the turnover in the head coaching staff kind of held him back as he was trying to adjust to the NBA um, because he went through the Lionel Hollins year, then interim head coach, and then Kenny Atkinson. Um so I, I don't think that was good for a player who is trying to find his role. And I, I don't think that it's it's fair to be critical of you for having him at number nine, because like all these guys are ultimately like similar tiered players within the last decade for Brooklyn. I think it's fair to be critical because I, a lot of that was based on a, a, a timeline that does not exist. Apparently, I didn't realize he spent so much time during the, the Lionel Hollins error. I think that means that I'm get I could call it an error, too, probably as well. But. I think that means I'm getting old. If I'm starting to blend together these semi-recent seasons, this is getting this is getting weird. Yeah, no, I've I've had that reaction throughout this too. It's like, wow, like 2010 feels so long ago. What happened? Things granted, start... like the beginning of March feels like a decade ago. So, yes, this has been the longest millennia that we've lived through, and it's only been a month. 
things do get a little bit more interesting. Well, not not for your list to me, but so who did you have? Who did you have at number nine? So my my number nine was the composite number eight, and it was Karis Levert. Um, he is also number six for the fan vote and number seven for you. Um, so definitely I was the lowest on him. And it's not, I wasn't trying to make that a, a criticism of what he can do when he's healthy so much as the limited availability that we've seen from him. I mean, only 207 games. And a lot of that came in a minor role. He's never averaged 30 minutes per game uh, throughout a season. He was pretty close this year. Um, we don't know when or if the season is going to resume and it's been his best year by far, which really held him back from earning a higher placement, probably for everyone, not just me. Um, we've, we've seen like those flashes of what he can do. Um, but the, the inability to put it together consistently kept him from rising higher for me. Which is, which is fair. I mean, you had him basically in the Chris Humphreys tier though. And that's what I take. I take exception. Yeah. To. Uh, thing he's look he's he's going to be really good I think the extension they signed him to ends up being at least a fair value one and you hinted at it too the season he's having this year he's hitting a pretty high clip of his off the dribble threes and yes I'm trying to will this season back into existence by talking about it in the present tense for for anyone who's taking an issue with that he's he's shown you know probably since his sophomore season that he can uh, handle the secondary playmaking responsibility and what really impressed me about his case and also while I was watching it last year uh, in the playoffs it wasn't D'Angelo Russell that was really their most effective offensive player against the Sixers it was Taris LeVert and whether you want to attribute that to Ben Simmons spending so much time on D'Angelo Russell or whatever that's fine but he still stepped up and he was basically their lone source of consistent offensive production during that five game series And, and to show that type of shot making that type of that type of talent at that level, I think it's a, a pretty big deal. And so that's why I had him obviously higher than you did. Yeah. I, I think you're missing the most compelling argument for him over Chris Humphreys though. And that's just that to the best of our knowledge, he has not dated a Kardashian. He's also better at basketball too. And I think that really helps as well. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to rebut that one. So who is, we're up to number eight now, correct? Uh, that, no, was, that was eight. Okay. Paris Levert number was number eight. Yeah. Number seven. Before we get to number seven, I also think it's intriguing that the fans had Kyrie Irving at number nine and he did not appear on either of ours, likely because he's played 20 games for the Nets. Um, yeah. Those 20 games have been fantastic, but I, I was, I was intrigued by that just because he, he actually got as high as a third place vote was kind of all over the balloting. And it seemed like some people maybe due to the complete lack of intriguing options at the bottom of this pecking order, wanted to give him some credit. Well, it also kind of depends on how you look at this. If, if you're just trying to rank the best Nets ever to put on a uniform, he's probably, is he one at this point? So if people looked at it like that, where it could be like a Kawhi Leonard situation in Toronto where people might have him above Kyle Lowry, I guess that's clearly not the case there because you said he received a third place vote. It's weird how I do think the name recognition is is what helps him. And look, he's been he ha, he had what was the game? Didn't he drop like fifty this season or four? Right. It was a forty five point game against the the Detroit Pistons. He's been really good. The Nets have not been really good though when he's on the court. I will say that's not solely his fault. Their offensive drop off without him on the floor is incredibly steep. They're they've put together a pretty good defense without him this season. So there's that trade off there. I'm not ready to go in the uh, the Nets are better off without Kyrie. And then he did have the 50-point game. It was, the, it, was the, it was against the Timberwolves to open the season. So if, if he had played, this is a better way to frame this. Let's say he had played, maybe he missed only like 10 or, or 15 games as opposed to most of the season to this point. Would he have made your top 10 list for the Nets? I think so. I think he would have come in at either number seven or eight, depending on the level at which he played and maybe what happened in the playoffs. But I, I do think that there's a, a pretty clear top seven here. Yeah, when you're looking at, because I feel like you have to factor in the length of tenure, that there is a pretty clear top seven. And that's where the discussion gets more interesting, because uh, the clear top seven for me was not the clear top seven for you. That's true. March is over, Hardwood Knox listeners. It was the longest millennia of our lives. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. 
Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or let them bring Vegas right to you with their online casino and blackjack tables. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the weather. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use our promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Again, that's BLUEWIRE. All one word. Bet online. Your online wagering experts. Who who is at number seven for the composite vote? Who is at number seven is D'Angelo Russell. Um, he was exactly number seven for me. Uh, he was number five for the fans, and because your clear top seven was different than my clear top seven, he was number eight for you. So as yeah. the dissenter, I'll let you go first here. <laughs> Look, he had one good season with the Nets. Like, one really good season. Last year, I'm not saying that... I'm not going to harp on the fact that he was an all-star by technicality, but before Karis Levert's injury, like, he was... Levert was the guy that the Nets were clearly focusing on. And there were points at the beginning of the season where D'Angelo Russell wasn't even on the floor during crunch time. And I, I, I give him a lot of props for navigating that rough patch, and it never seemed like his his attitude was a problem during that time. And he had a hell of a year. I believe when I did the NBA's top 100 players this year, he fell inside my top 40, top 45. And so that's a really good player. And what you see him doing now uh, while he was with the Warriors and, and during the 12 games he spent with the Timberwolves, this is a really good NBA player. But when you're looking at the time he spent in Brooklyn, where there's only been 129 games compared to the 200 plus that carrot, Karis LeVert has appeared in, I re- I'm really wondering what the case is to put him then over Karis LeVert is because he had that one year where I still think there might have been some confusion in this, but you could have justified him as a top 25 player potentially. I'm, on- I'm honestly asking here. No, I-, I think for me it was the the ability to provide a sustained peak because like you said, like it seemed like Karis LeVert was going to be that guy until he got hurt. And the difference for me is that D'Angelo Russell seemed like he was going to be that guy and then didn't get hurt. So I I always had questions about the sustainability of the peak that he reached in Brooklyn, just because it's hard to rely on those mid-range jumpers, especially as a guard who doesn't draw fouls ever. Um, But he still made those shots throughout the, the year. He still provided an incredible amount of offensive value just by drawing tougher assignments from the defense every night and freeing things up for teammates. Um, I, I think it's easy to forget that he averaged seven assists a game during that 2018-19 season in Brooklyn. Uh, like He was just a, a genuine offensive force for all 81 games that he played, which is not something that we can say about Levert to this point in his career. Wow. Throwing some shade at his availability. I, I get it. I just don't think... You want to put D'Angelo Russell as high as eighth, or if you even want to put him high, I just don't. It, the case for me to to make for him over Levert is just is really tough. I I understand it, and there's there is that element of the sustained peak and the fact that his peak in any given season has been higher than Levert's in any given season relative to the rest of the NBA. Looking specifically at their Brooklyn tenures, it's just it's tough for me because his first year in Brooklyn wasn't really that impressive. Only played in forty eight games. It, it becomes tough for me, but, you know, seven, eight, that's where we have them. We're, we're splitting hairs there, I guess. We are. I mean, to me, like, he's still in that tier above the Chris Humphreys, Karis LeVert, Rondé Hart, Hollis Jefferson guys to me. But, but Karis I, I LeVert get, is not. <laughs> I, I, get why, I get why you feel differently. I don't, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer here just because it's valuing things a little bit differently. I will say, so you, you look at what he did last year, and I believe uh, he, before this season, he, James Harden, and Stephen Curry are now the only players in NBA history to average at least 20 points, eight assists, and two made threes per per 36 minutes. Different era, and we know that guys weren't shooting a, a ton of threes beforehand, but that I felt like that was an interesting thing to track. I think that makes the case for him in that top seven. I was trying to talk myself into it. I'm still not there, <laughs> but I was trying to talk myself into it. Well, fortunately, in the top six, we have all the same players, just in slightly different orders. So at least we can agree there's a clear top six. There's a consensus top six. None of this well, trash not from about the fans. Adam's consensus Not top. from the fans, though. Oh, well, then never mind. Who did yeah. the fans have at number seven? Did we go over that? 
Not yet. Um, because number seven and number eight on the fans haven't yet appeared because D'Angelo Russell was number five and, and Karis LeVert was number six. Um, the consensus number six is Jarrett Allen, who I had at number six, you had at number five, and the fans had at number eight, uh, which I was surprised by. Uh, maybe it's just that he hasn't quite been able to take that that proverbial next step during what was supposed to be an even more successful season this year, um, especially with the injuries that have kept Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving off the floor for so much. Like the fact that he hasn't clearly taken the lead in the rotation over DeAndre Jordan, maybe that's what held him back here. But I've I blamed the coaching staff for that, not him. It's absolutely the coaching staff's fault, and that mostly applies to to even Kenny Kenny Atkinson, who I was an advocate of, but there was clearly some some backdoor politics going on there because Jared Allen's minutes should not be on the decline from his sophomore campaign. And so that's that's where I think evaluating him gets iffy too, is because there can only be so much projection here um, since we're almost, the decade's almost technically out and whether or not you believe there will be basketball again in the year 2020, that has to factor in. But he's... He's really good. He's more mobile on the defensive end than I think people give him credit for. His unit is just this regular rim protector. His Achilles heel is probably going up against stronger bigs. Um, and yes, that's a problem. But the fact that he can really move in space, I think that helps his defensive value. And then he's he's a solid rim runner. We kind of thought maybe at the end of his sophomore campaign that there might be more to his three-point shot. That's not something that the Nets have explored since then. It's it's fair. I wonder if this is what hold him holds him back though is people wondering about his trajectory now because there's this DeAndre Jordan stuff going on and uh, DJ was immediately inserted into the starting lineup after Kenny Atkinson left the team and maybe that impacts perception of it there's definitely an element of oh this this feels like a lateral year for him even though some of his counting stats are a little bit better but his his free throw percentage dropped he's shooting a higher percentage on his twos there's just a lot of mixed signals there uh, I, I still think that he, when you're looking specifically at his position and center might be the only position that kind of matters now because it feels like you can, that's like the only spot you look at players and say, oh, they're a center. I don't even really do that with point as much anymore. Regardless, mm-hmm. if, if you're looking at more traditional or pure fives, whatever you want to call them, I still think he's someone who could very clearly wind up being top 15 or better at his own, own position. And uh, the body of work that he's shown in Brooklyn, aside from if you're going to play in 200 plus games for this team over this decade, you're kind of automatically in contention unless you're absolutely terrible. Uh, I just think, you know, he was kind of that first blue chip prospect that they thought they had. I know there's Karis LeVert there too, but because of the injuries, uh, he wasn't as much of a known quantity. And I think he was sort of the first blue chip prospect or that what if guy to him, not a what if, but that, you know, high level young player to emerge out of the 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 error that they're in now or, or the error that they were working their way out of um, when they first got Kenny Atkinson. And I think that means ultimately means a lot. Yeah, I, I think the fact that you labeled him a blue chip prospect, which is legitimate. Uh, I mean, he absolutely was coming out of Texas, um, even though he went 22nd in the draft. Um, I, I think that the the lateral growth, the the failure to completely reach expectations is kind of what holds perception of him back a little bit here. I mean, we, I, I remember he was supposed to be kind of a a three point shooting center out of Texas. He hadn't done it with the Longhorns. It seemed like he had the stroke. He had the ability to, to grow into that. And that was one of the things that made him so intriguing as this seven footer with the Afro guy who could, who could potentially be a legitimate floor spacer. But I I still don't know how can play and don't just love how he plays the, the fearlessness on defense is what stands out for me most because it seems like he's one of those guys who is completely willing to go up and challenge dunk attempts from anyone and because of that we've seen like some pretty like standout blocks of guys like lebron james um and i i guess because he's created those kind of fearless highlights that was that was the biggest reason i was surprised that he didn't get even more love from those voting He's definitely first team all doesn't give a fuck about getting posterized. Yeah. He's right yeah. there. Which is a great team to have. That's That should be a separate podcast. That and the follow into hell and back team need to do those. Who did, who, and so the, who did the fans then have at number six? The fans had Karis LeVert at number six. I like them. Probably should have put him higher now too. <laughs> uh, who, and we're on to number five now, correct? No? We're on to number five now. Uh, so number five, the consensus had Joe Harris, 
who checked in at number seven from the fans. He was number five for me, and he was number four for you. So you want to kick it off here as the uh, the biggest Joe Harris homer in the building? Yeah, why not? Joe Harris is good. This is, you want, he's the just universally translatable type of talent where his shooting is going to plug in and work anywhere, can really move off the ball. You can count him to knock down those threes at a consistently high clip. What I do think remains underrated about his game is that he can put the ball on the floor and he'll attack open spaces from the three-point line. He'll at least keep the possession moving. He's not someone that's going to burn through uh, the shot clock trying to decide whether he needs to make that second pass or put the ball on the floor. And then that sort of quick decision-making does translate into um, some nice playmaking from time to time. And then he's not, I wouldn't call him a good or above-average defender, but I do think he stands up against small forwards, like traditional wings, more so than people realize. He's a little bit stronger than than he might look or people give him credit for. And I'm not saying that he's a huge part of why the Nets defense has consistently or consistently overachieved past tense during the Kenny Atkinson days. Uh, but he was certainly someone to have that, that specialist where there's so often this defensive trade-off where if we want his three-point shooting and his offense, we, you know, we might have to really take, take it in our teeth at the other end. He's never been that type of specialist. And I would still fall short of calling him a three and D guy, but the fact that he doesn't get absolutely torpedoed in a lot of his matchups and, and the fact that Brooklyn can at least have some confidence of putting him at the three rather than viewing him as one of those one position shooting guards that goes a long way. And he's sort of, I, I know Spencer Dinwiddie gets a lot of credit for this and any, and, and he deserves it, but he and Joe Harris are sort of like the guys that came out of obscurity through this whole Nets process. Like those are the two names that are going to be most associated with the work that Brooklyn did during its darkest days. I want to go on a slight tangent here because I know that this is supposed to be themed about the Brooklyn Nets, but how in the world did the Cleveland Cavaliers not at least give this guy a chance? Like, all they wanted to do was put shooters around LeBron James while he was still there, but they didn't give him any run whatsoever. 51 games, 9.7 minutes per game as a rookie, only five appearances as a sophomore while they kept giving big minutes to Amon Shumpert. Like, he was a 24-year-old during that sophomore season. We knew that he could shoot from his time at Virginia. We knew that he could shoot, I'm assuming, from his time in practices and training camp and stuff. But, like, I, I, I don't get it how he could not get any opportunities in that system. There. There is a, there does seem to be a stigma against inexperienced players for LeBron's teams. That's I don't want to put that on LeBron, but when you have such an urgency to win, then there's not really the bandwidth for the type of experimentation. No, it's, that it it's true. And they were giving big minutes to Mo Williams and Richard Jefferson deep in their 30s. Um, like there is definitely a preference for that, but still, like if the most coveted asset around LeBron is shooters, whoops, missed opportunity here. Right. Yeah. For look, he's going to be looking at. 2020 free agency whenever it happens is it going to be are we going to have two 2021 free agencies at this point I don't, I don't really know but he's probably going to be a guy that the lakers will want to target with their non-taxpayers mid-level exception think about his fit on that team now so may, maybe better he comes late back than never yeah. <laughs> who do we have long pause after after him or were, was there any discrepancies here because i had him at four you had him at five the fans had him at five correct and that's fans where had him at seven yeah that's why he fell a little bit. But yeah, so we'll go from one Joe to another. Um, we had Joe Johnson checking in at number four. He was number three for both me and the fans. And he was down at number six for you. Um, it's He's another guy who's who was kind of tough to place for me just because only three and a half seasons. But he was an all-star during one of those seasons. He spent more time than someone like D'Angelo Russell playing and playing at a fairly high level. He definitely wasn't peak Joe Johnson with these teams. He was, uh, he was in his 30s. He... He uh, wasn't taking over games on offense quite as much, but he was still like that that valuable wing who could guard multiple positions, who could get a from scratch bucket down the stretch. He shot 40.1% on 5.1 three-point attempts per game during the 2013-14 season. Like there was there was a lot to like here. Is it possible to have underrated Joe Johnson here and overrated him for the one with the Hawks? Because that might be the area that I'm in now. You mentioned he was only there for three and a half seasons. That's enough for the second most minutes of any Brooklyn Net played during this time. And so, second in games played, too. 
yeah, there's look, there's the thereness. That's what we talk about all the time. Now, uh, I just was like you said, he wasn't even close to prime Joe Johnson with the Nets, and the I, maybe I'm still sort of uh, you know tainted by the fact that they acquired him to keep Darren Williams there. I I don't know what it is, but the, just knowing what he was in Atlanta to what he then became in in Brooklyn, I just don't associate him with that window of Brooklyn Nets basketball as much as I feel like I should. I'd be more inclined to look at Kevin Garnett or Paul Pierce, even though both of them were there for for less time. And of course, I'd be more inclined to talk about D. Will as well. So that's where it really falls for me. And had he been, maybe it was just a matter of the the packing order becoming too crowded shortly after he got there. And so that really cut into his production. Uh, he did have some, you know, uh, he had that game, I think it was against the Bulls in the playoffs where he came through for them and always just sort of reliable in these, in some of these playoff situations, uh, 2013, 2014, there's a case to be made that um, during that 12 game playoff push, he was the Nets's best or, or second best player on that team. And so there's definitely a case to have him hired. I find myself feeling like I put him too low, but that was more so the product of I really wanted to make sure that I recognized how important I think Allen, Joe Harris are to to the Nets franchise during the window that we're looking at. Yeah, and I can't really begrudge you for that. I, I wonder if it's also like a case of of expectations and, and the failure to reach them, not necessarily on Joe's part, but just the Nets as a whole, where you know they, they acquired Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce uh, before that 2013-14 season, and they were supposed to be the next super team. We saw the Sports Illustrated cover. Um, Jason Kidd, who still had some some uh, some love for his coaching potential, I guess, um, was was in charge, and they they only won 44 games in Eastern Conference semifinals exit. The next season, they only won 38 games. They were eliminated in the first round, and I, I think the the complete and utter failure to live up to those lofty expectations kind of diminished the stock of everyone who was involved, especially the guys who were viewed more as tertiary pieces. No, I'm, I'm definitely with you there. Do you remember how excited people were though in 2016 when the Nets waved him and he signed with the heat and thought that he was going to be like some sort of swing piece for them? I love when we get like, honestly, these big no, past- because oh, I right. totally forgot that he, I totally forgot he played for the heat until looking it up. I just remember those were one of the earlier transactions with regards to, to Twitter's reaction where it was like, we might just be getting too excited about the name power. And it still happens. But everyone was like, oh, he's going to be perfect for Miami. Like, this is someone that's really just going to help them. He's going to be that swing piece for them. And uh, he ends up spending, what was it, like 24 games there. And he was, I mean, he actually was fine. He averaged 15 points there and shot better than 40% from three. But I just remember how excited NBA Twitter was about the Joe Johnson heat, heat fit. That's just Can something I- that comes to mind. Can I give you a t- quick trivia challenge as I'm long as you get click away from any Joe Johnson information you currently have up? Uh, his basketball reference page is now closed. Can you name the seven teams he's played for? Oh, fuck. Let's see. We have the Hawks, the Jazz, the Heat, the Nets. Was he on the Rockets for a minute? He was on the Rockets for a minute. Wait, technically, what technically for... Uh, for 505 minutes. All right. What am I at? Five of seven? That's five of seven. You are actually missing the, the Pistons? first two teams of his career. He has not played for the Pistons. Oh, no, that's right. They signed him. Why am I missing the first part of Joe Johnson's career? Oh, Phoenix? Duh. That's a duh. But Six. who drafted him? Where did he start his career? I got nothing there. Am I Started going in to... Boston. He was yeah, traded that... midway through his rookie season. Does that ever happen to you, though, where you miss the obvious one? Phoenix was obvious. Boston, I feel like, was not so obvious. But me missing Phoenix, that would have been demonstratively terrible. Yeah, I think I forget sometimes when, like, those these guys who become something were traded midway through their, their rookie year. Like, Kevin Johnson is a great older example where he started with Cleveland and was traded to Phoenix midway through his year just because he didn't work with Mark Price. And, like, I totally forget about that. Well, Joe Johnson played for the Suns. I will not forget that now. (laughs) (laughs) You going to take us to our next number, or are we going to keep going with these awkward pauses? I like the awkward pauses, as we just kind of like revel in your inability to get all seven teams. Would you have gotten all seven? I I would have gotten the early ones. I knew knew he started in Boston and then went to Phoenix. I don't know. Like I said, I forgot that he played with the Heat. I think I would have gotten six and missed that one. 
I got six and missed Boston. What do you want from me? Just because I named Phoenix last. That yeah, mean. but it, I, I posed the challenge, so I didn't have to answer it, which was great work on my part. <laughs> so Joe Johnson was in the composite number four. Who was number three? Number three in the composite is Spencer Dinwiddie, who was number three for you, was number four for both me and the fans. Um, and he, he was another tough one to place because all of them are for this franchise when very few people have played more than 200 games. The top um, two were easy. The top two were easy. The top two were easy. The top two were definitely easy. Um, but yeah, I, I, what he's doing this year, what he did at the end of last year, what he did in the playoffs last year is not what he's done throughout his time in Brooklyn, which I think is why I had him a little bit lower than you. Um, just because he he didn't, he, he only shot 38.7% from the field as a sophomore. He only played 22.6 minutes per game as a rookie, or not as a rookie, and not as a sophomore. A rookie and sophomore with Brooklyn, because he played for Detroit at the beginning of his career. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just, I, I struggled with how we weigh what he's done this year during the abbreviated season. He definitely is a guy that I associate with shooting so much better from three-point range than he actually does when you look at his percentages and I could see there sort of being this struggle where people were talking about him as an all-star fringe all-star it does feel like that ceiling's sort of over ambitious but look averaging over 20 points per game in the NBA like he's doing this season that's not that's not easy and he can really command an offense someone to uh, someone you have who you can count on to attack in the half court in crunch time He's he's a pretty good passer. His finishing around the rim has improved over the past two seasons. Uh, it does feel like there are a lot of times maybe he complains a little bit too much about uh, the la- I shouldn't say the lack of, but the absence of a whistle in certain instances. But he's brought his free throw attempt rate up a bunch over the past two seasons as well, at least relative to his his first two years, uh, his first season in Brooklyn. Excuse me, where it really fell off a cliff. He's the closest thing I feel like they've had to just a steadying presence throughout. This, this decade. Brooke Lopez is certainly there. Uh, it's just maybe the timing of, of when he actually left and then some of the injuries he de- he dealt with early on. Perhaps that takes it away, but he's certainly right there. Uh, Dinwiddie has been consistently good for them and it ends up being just this, this hell of a fine. Like I said, when I was talking about Joe Johnson, uh, just a hugely valuable product to come out of what was supposed to be this barren uh, this barren time where they didn't really have draft picks, didn't have trade assets, and to be able to unearth players or take chances on players like like Dinwiddie and give him the freedom to fail for for stretches, and I think it's I think it's been huge for the Nets for for his career as well, and just someone probably does give you some limitations defensively. I don't think he translates to the two and three spots as well as he he probably should. And then as you've mentioned before, defending point guards is just hell on earth for everybody, no matter how good you are. But all he can do on offense, I don't know if you want him being your your lead guard uh, starting every single game and then heading to the playoffs, but I would say that if he came off the bench for an entire year, he's probably sixth man of the year. And that's that's not his ceiling, but I'm saying he's that he's that quintessential sixth man of the of the year guy. And I, I think that's right. that's huge. Yeah, and he's under contract for two more seasons with Brooklyn at a reasonable price. He he strikes me as the kind of guy who would want to stay in place on another longer deal. Uh, maybe that's just a gut feeling. Uh, but I, I don't know that I would be surprised if a decade from now we were looking back and he'd passed both of our top two. Um, I, I think last year we we saw this the ceiling that he could hit, but it was brief. This year we've seen that he can string together those kind of offensive offensive performances night in and night out, even with a three-point shot that kind of flukily hasn't been finding home quite as much. I, I think as that progresses to a more reasonable career mean, we're going to see him get slightly better on the offensive end. And as he becomes more accustomed to carrying such a heavy load on offense, we could see some level of of defensive growth as well, like we see from so many guards who are unaccustomed to taking on those burdens. So for me, like he he was tough to place between the three, four, five, and six spots for me. But I think of all of those guys, like he's the one I can see with the most helium. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if he he ascends to those number one or two spots down the road. It's interesting to think about that. There's just and look on offense, there's just this smoothness to his offensive game. And I think that's why you trust even when he's 
pulling up off the dribble that his three-pointers are going to go down, even though statistically they've been well below the league average over the past uh, right, four like, seasons. I think he and Jamal Murray are my my primary examples of that, where it's just like guys who play with either smoothness or confidence to the degree that you can't help but trust it. That's a good way to put it. Number two, who we got? Number two, unanimously across the board, we have Darren Williams, um, who was not Utah Jazz Darren Williams when he came to Brooklyn. Um, I think they wanted him to be Utah Jazz Darren Williams. They paid him like he was Utah Jazz Darren Williams. He wasn't, but he was Do still good. Do you remember how much of an issue that was to get to basically ensure that he'd stay? They traded for Joe Johnson, didn't they trade for Gerald Wallace as well? Yep. Before that, they went to such great lengths to maximize his window, and that definitely backfired. <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 first the first full season, he struggled a lot. When he first came to New Jersey, uh, he slashed 34-9, 27-1, during that first 12-game stint. But his first full season with the Nets was pretty solid. He didn't shoot as efficiently as he did with the Jazz. His knees were already starting to give way a little bit. But, man, that crossover was so devastating. And the physicality with which he played, like, he knowed, he, he knew how to leverage. He knowed. He knowed. <laughs> He's throwing off my my grasp of English, uh, just remembering that crossover and just like how well he could use that frame, um, you know, 6'2", six, 6'3", two, uh, six, 200 pounds. But it seemed like he played a little heavier than that and not necessarily in a bad way uh, during the beginning of that that Nets portion. You know, guys, guys who could get past their defender and seal them off and create in the lane like. He was he was really good at the beginning, but then I think the injuries and the the advancing age kind of sapped more from him than we've seen from other players. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if he was maybe miscast as the alpha on a team, but I don't think he was. It was just a little late. Yeah, I mean, there was the conversation when he was in Utah. There was there was a Chris Paul versus Williams debate. Like that it was, was legitimate for like ten days. <laughs> but th- it was a conversation that people could actually have. Right. I think Chris Paul always came out on top pretty clearly. There was a conversation that people actually had and you wouldn't laugh at. I just remember how much it seemed like Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett hated him after their time with the Nets was over. And so that makes you question a lot of different things. But yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, with, with his knees and then his efficiency really fell off a cliff once yeah, he got... Yeah, was a stark drop. Right, once he got to Brooklyn. He had like the, the like sort of a rebound season in 13-14 where... He started hitting more of his two-pointers again, but it, it was basically... And it, look, his, his two-pointers never hit rock bottom, but the next season, 2014-2015, sh- shoots 39.5% from inside the arc. It was just it was a swift decline for him. Uh, the, and the package they gave up for him, I don't know how much it hurts in, in retrospect, but that it seemed like when they got him, it seemed like a reaction to the, the Knicks got Carmelo Anthony, we need to do this. And yeah, I think that's totally fair. So they, they end up giving up what, what became Derek Favors, Devin Harris, Cash, and uh, the Ennis Canner draft pick and the Gorgie Jang draft pick. A lot of bigs involved in that trade when looking in, in hindsight. So I still will associate Williams more with the Jazz than I will with the Nets. And I don't know that he ever would have came in uh, contention with Brooke Lopez for the number one spot, spoilers. But I do feel like that's a, a big reason why I don't even feel great about putting him at number two, where I'd, where I'd be willing to listen to arguments at this point, maybe for, for Spencer Dinwiddie. If not now, then probably by next season. Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that held him back was just an inability to accept how his game was changing. I, I, it's easy to forget just how good a facilitator he was with Utah. And I think he forgot that in Brooklyn where we should have seen his field goal attempt rate decline as he stopped gaining as much separation from defenders. He should have tried to leverage that passing vision even more, but he didn't. And I I think just playing the wrong way, we see, we see guys age gracefully. Vince Carter maybe as the primary example of a guy who successfully made the transition from bona fide superstar to good, impactful valuable role player and then we see guys like darren williams who just seemed unable to to accept what was changing and it held him back no i think that makes perfect sense for him and yeah i mean he was i don't know if you would say he was the craftiest passer but he had like a ton of games where he just dished out so many assists i I think he has five 
20 assist games in his career, 20 or more assist games for his career, which is just absolutely bonkers. He has I, six. I, did not know. I just looked that up. They had six. On six different occasions between 2007 and 2012, he dished out 20 or more assists. I remember the 20 assist game with New Jersey, um, but he had yeah four different seasons too in Utah where he had, he had over 20. Darren Impressive. Williams. Impressive. Yeah, he was good once upon a time. He was. All right, number one. Uh, I don't think we need much of a drum roll because it's across the board, Brooke Lopez, which is whoa, whoa, whoa. as Andre obvious. Blatch, and, like, like a minute here. He did please. get a vote, as we're going to go over in the honorable mentions. Um, but yeah, I mean, was there any was there any doubt that Brooke Lopez was going to be number one? Not only was he a good, consistent source of offensive production for them, maybe not the defender he's become with the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, but, you know, he, he played 110 more games than anybody else. He logged 12,590 minutes. Second place was Joe Johnson at 9,942. Like, even if we take out the fact that Brolo was actually good at basketball, like the fairness factor alone makes him a legitimate contender for number one. And I think everyone recognized that. I really give him credit for this. Didn't make his entire case for me, but that season, the final season he spent in Brooklyn, I believe it was Kenny Atkinson's first year, 2016, 2017. And I was around that team a lot. And for someone who had been through so many different iterations of the Nets, he was still always in good spirits. And the way he was asked to change his game was not something that he ever publicly or, or seemingly privately pushed back against. He took a bunch more three-pointers, and he hit them at a respectable clip. That's when he really became uh, a better passer was that year, though that kind of started in 2015, 2016 as well. So I, I just respect during those times where Brooklyn was just undergoing so much change and knowing how much, how many different versions of the team he'd already lived through and knowing what his bread and butter was when you look at post-ups, for him to change or adapt so starkly, that's something I'll always remember. And I think it rings truer now because of what he's been able to do since since joining the Bucks. People sort of wrote him off when he spent that what's called a gap year with the Lakers. He's he's still really good. And like you said, I don't think he was quite the defender uh, he is now. A lot of that might just have to do with the personnel around him too. His his role is a little bit different and then also uh the the, the personnel around him is obviously a ton different and the game is played differently than it was in let's say 2013-2014. But he was always a guy that uh was dependable as a shot blocker. And I think now we're seeing that he was never just this terrible rebounder, that he added value as a guy who could really box out. And even in Brooklyn, during the season he spent with Kenny Atkinson, that was a big focus where let's box out and make sure our guards can get the ball and then get out in transition. And so he's always provided value there too. And just to underscore how stark that difference was, during his first eight seasons, he took 31 three-pointers total. Not not per season, but total. He made three of them. That is 9.7%. I'm not missing a digit. It's like there. Marcus Smart in the clutch, even though you think that. <laughs> oh, <she's> no. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Way to interrupt my point with uh, just a knife. Um, anyway, during that 2016-17 season you referenced, he took 387 and made 134, which is 34.6%. And that was a huge jump. And I, I do think that that even if, uh, even if part of it was by design and there was more of a focusing space for the guards like imagine how good he would have been if he wasn't like one of the worst seven foot rebounders we've seen because he was like right. maybe he was boxing out maybe he was better than like the, the the raw numbers show but like he was still one of the worst high volume seven foot rebounders we've seen statistically and there and, are other ways to probably add value in general too we need to get no, it, it's true. Out. And we see, I mean, like Steve, Steven Adams, right? Like his rebounding totals were lower because he cleared space for Russell Westbrook for so much time. Right. And like, to some extent, like Brooke Lopez was doing that in Brooklyn, but, but not, not to that extent. Now that you're done shitting all over Brolo, <laughs> can you get to the, I would have been to call them honorable mentions names who are in contentions according to the fan vote. Yeah. I don't know what to call them because it, it gets, it gets pretty bad pretty quickly. But uh, <laughs> players who were outside of the top 10 in the fan vote, but did show up on ballots. We have Jeremy Lin and Chris Humphreys tied at number 11. We have Paul Pierce at 13. We have Kevin Garnett and Rondé Hollis Jefferson tied at 14. We have Devin Harris and Damari Carroll tied at 16. Mason Plumley alone in 18th. Reggie Evans, Keith Bogans, and Thaddeus Young tied at 19th. 
Gerald Wallace alone at 22nd, and then a big tie of guys who showed up on one ballot in the 10th spot. So tied at 23rd, we have Andre Blatch, DeAndre Jordan, Sean Kilpatrick, Jason Terry, and my personal favorite, Kevin Durant, who has not played a game for Brooklyn yet. Right. That's, that's so tough. That Both he and Kyrie would have made the list, at least for me, had they played, let's say, in like half the season or more. But I don't know how you put, unless you're just saying who's the best player Bench to ever. leadership. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's DeAndre Jordan's favorite net ever, because that would make sense. Yeah, I mean, maybe. So I guess this theory doesn't quite work because DeAndre Jordan and Kevin Durant both only got one tenth place vote. But maybe like you view the fact that DeAndre Jordan is on the team as a credit to Kevin Durant, and then you want to give him some love. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to justify it a million different ways in my head, but I'm, I'm failing with all of them. I mean, if you did this off the top of your head instead of researching it, maybe you just can't think of 10 names. And I would try to be mean. <sighs> but if, but you're, if you're not a Nets fan, maybe you just can't think of 10 names off the top of your head to put, to put in there. I, I guess, but like I've also seen some of the ballots where in the eighth, ninth, and tenth spots, people are just like, don't care or no one because that's, we're requiring answers to all ten and people are finding ways around that, which is valid, which is totally fair. But but yeah, Kevin Durant got a vote. I am surprised Alan Anderson didn't get a vote. Thirteenth in minutes played over the past ten years for the Nets. Mm. That's that's pretty damn high. Mirza Toledovich was eleventh in uh, in games played, I think, and didn't get any love. I'm not going to lie. I thought about putting him 10th. Thought about it. Cursory, but I wasn't going to leave off. I'm glad RH. you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't leave off Rondé Hollis Jefferson for him. I, I might have considered if it was between Chris Humphreys and him, we might have had, had a conversation. This has been the Brooklyn Nets all-decade rankings, though. Hope you enjoyed them. Again, follow Adam on Twitter at Frommel09. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast soon with the Charlotte Hornets won. We promise for less awkward transitions from player to player. That might have been this might have been the worst podcast that we did with that. I take ownership of it as the person in charge of segueing. Until next time, though, I leave everybody with a shout out to you know what, Alan Anderson, 13th in game play for the Mets over the past decade. Shout out to you, Alan Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.